You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to return to John's Gospel, John chapter 3. We're going to begin reading verse 1. We'll read through... Verse 15, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes or where it goes. So it is with their spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning as we look to your word, and we look to you in full recognition that, Father, we are utterly dependent upon you, Father, to bless us as we study, to open our hearts. If we are to profit from this passage, and to profit eternally, then we need, O oh Father, the work of your Holy Spirit. And we pray, O oh Father, that he will work in our hearts, that he will work in our minds, that, Father, these things, you would present them very clearly to us, O oh Lord, that we may be equipped for every good work, that we may be transformed into more and more the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. For your glory, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been studying Jesus' earthly ministry now for some weeks. I believe this is about sermon number nine, I think, uh, in John's gospel already. It goes by very quickly. And we have so far seen several different responses to Jesus, haven't we? In fact, if you look back to chapter one, we'll just review for a moment, uh, verse 35 uh, John the Baptist is standing with two of his disciples, who we believe to be Andrew and, and the Apostle John, who is the author of the Gospel of John. And John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And if you look at verse 37, the disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And you'll recall that we stopped there. We spent some time there a few weeks ago for the disciples had heard this before from John. John had shared this before. But something was different this time. They heard, and this time they followed. And this was a response that we have seen. In fact, uh, the disciples are added to. Uh, Andrew goes and gets his brother, Simon Peter. Simon Peter comes on board. And then Jesus sees Philip. In verse 43, he finds Philip, if you will. Jesus came to seek that which is lost. He found Philip. Philip follows him. Philip runs for Nathaniel, and now Nathaniel follows him. And we have seen as the disciples go to Cana, and Jesus performs what John calls the first of the signs, the first sign that John records for us, that through this sign, namely the water transformed into wine, that the faith of the disciples are strengthened, isn't it? They're strengthened. 
And then we went to the temple. It's the time of Passover. Jesus comes and he, he clears the temple. And as he clears the temple, he's met by a second group of folks in verse 18 of chapter 2, probably temple police. And I would think certainly some members of the Sanhedrin come and see Jesus. And here we see a second group. They ask Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And as we pointed out, uh, here there is no lack of sign. Uh, I've said several times, I don't want to belabor the point, but just imagine uh, going to a, even a small flea market somewhere, which is tough to imagine even a flea market right now being found anywhere. But imagine going to even a small flea market and just overturning the tables and taking their little money boxes and throwing them all out of there. It would be very difficult to do. Nonetheless, an operation of this magnitude taking place in the temple precincts. And Jesus drives them all out, doesn't he? Single-handedly, he drives them all. There's a sign. And I, I made mention that as D.A. Carson points out, even the way they framed the question in verse 18, they certainly were aware that they were speaking at the very least to a prophet who has come from God. But they ask for a sign. What is really the problem? The problem is really they don't want anything to change. That's often the case, isn't it? With a sinful heart. Even, we might even think of uh, our hearts. Uh, after we've walked with Jesus for many years, there's still places in our hearts that are stubborn. And we don't want them to change, do we? We like things to be the way they are. So it's easier to, to offer some kind of excuse and to say, Jesus, you know, just show me a sign. Show me a sign, Jesus. And it's interesting how Jesus responds to them. And this is, the, this is a pattern for Jesus. We look back to Matthew 13 and we, we saw that this is a pattern. When people come to him with an unwilling heart, and that's really at the end of the day what's up here. There's this obstinate, unwilling heart uh, to believe. Even in the midst of all of the evidence that's before them, they dismiss it because they don't want to believe. They don't believe because they don't want to believe. And how does Jesus respond typically in that scenario? Well, he responds with these enigmatic statements. Enigmatic, meaning hard to understand. And he says to them in verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And even the disciples didn't understand that, did they? Not until after Jesus was raised. It's oftentimes how Jesus will respond to a heart like that. But then we come to another group in verse 23 of chapter 2. While Jesus is at the Passover, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And on the surface of it, that sounds great, doesn't it? I mean, that sounds wonderful. Uh, all these people are believing. Yet you come to verse 24 and you see there's a problem. Jesus did not entrust himself to this group. Why? Because he realized that these professions were spurious. They were resting in a false foundation. They were spurious. And last week we spent some time looking at that, especially enthusiasm for the spectacular. You know, uh, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's an enthusiasm for the spectacular in all of our hearts, I, I think. That's why things like Ripley's Believe It or Not is so popular. I mean, uh, Tammy and I just started watching this uh, series, this TV series entitled Hillary. Now, it's not on Hillary Clinton, I'll show you that. It's, it's Hillary the mountain climber. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of Hillary, uh, first man to climb, one of the first men to climb to the top of Mount Everest. And what is his fascination? His fascination is with these mountaintops. You know, there's this spectacular scene. So, you know, there, there is in us. And, and who doesn't want to see the pictures from up there? Who doesn't want to see the spectacular pictures of, of God's creation from, from nearly 30,000 feet in the air? Um, who, who, or above sea level, that is. Uh, who, who doesn't want to see that? So we have in our hearts this enthusiasm for the spectacular. But this, in many cases, it, this is no foundation. In all cases, this is no foundation for our faith. It's, a, it's, a, it's not a suitable foundation. So in chapter 3, we have one representative. Actually, in many ways, Nicodemus is a representative of two groups. He's a representative of the second group and the third group. 
Nicodemus is a Pharisee, right? And many of the Pharisees, uh, they would fall under that second camp, wouldn't they? Lord, show us a sign. Uh, they, uh, the stubborn heart and unwilling to believe, Wanting the status quo, not wanting things to change. We like things the way they are. And you recall last week I said a few words about the Pharisees. They, they uh, paid a high premium to externals, to appearance. We looked back to Matthew 23 where Jesus really in a, a scathing way rebukes them and says, on the outside, you guys look beautiful, but on the inside, what? Not so much. On the inside, you're full of dead man's bones and wickedness. So they're all about outward appearance. They're all about uh, following these uh, high-disciplined and regimented life and following these externals, yet there's no inward transformation. And that's pretty important to hold on to in understanding Jesus and Nicodemus and how Jesus uh, handles Nicodemus. In verse 1, Nicodemus, he's a ruler of the Jews, we're told. And one, one other item which I think is important is in verse 10, we're told that he is the teacher of Israel. In fact, Jim and I were just talking about that before the service. And the King James, I think, calls him a master, if I remember correctly. And I don't know if the manuscripts that the King James translators were working with lacked what we call the definite article or not. I've been meaning to look to that. And I haven't done it yet, but I will look to that. Uh, but the, the, the texts, the textual evidence that the ESV translators are looking at has the definite article in front of teacher. And it says, the teacher of Israel. The teacher of Israel. Which would suggest that Nicodemus was one of the major teachers of Israel. A very influential teacher of Israel. Probably a very wealthy man as well, uh, we would suppose. He's the ruler of the Jews. He comes to Jesus by night. And even though, like, we could ask Nicodemus, and I think we should ask Nicodemus, what's on your mind? Why are you coming to Jesus? And it would seem that he is seeing through the hypocrisy. It would seem that he has realized, he's come to realize, listen, I am not what I present myself to be on the outside. I am nothing like that on the inside. And it seems that he comes to Jesus in the same way as the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, where we know what the rich young ruler had on his mind. He says, good teacher, what must a man do to inherit eternal life? Of course, Jesus deals with him a different way, and that's a that's a study for another time. But there's no question recorded for us, but there obviously was a question. Nicodemus comes to Jesus for some reason, and we can ascertain it from verse 3 in, the, in following the way Jesus responds to him. Jesus says to him, and, and by the way, Jesus doesn't need Nicodemus to ask a question. Maybe Nicodemus never did ask a question. And I lean towards that. I'm thinking maybe he never did. That's why it's not recorded. But Jesus, who can look into the heart and see what's in the heart, knows what's on Nicodemus' mind before he even asks. And he says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And what happens in that moment of time? What happens is everything that pertains to Nicodemus' approach to God becomes shattered into a million pieces. He is a shattered man as he processes what Jesus is saying. Because what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus amounts to this. The only way that you can be saved, Nicodemus, is if God saves you. And that applies to us all, doesn't it? I mean, what else does it mean? When he says, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Or unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Last week, we, we looked at that, born of water and the Spirit. Jesus is, Jesus is drawing from the, from the prophets, especially Ezekiel, primarily Ezekiel. You know, let's take a look back there again. Keep your place in John 3, and let's just take another look back there. I want to point something out. 
probably many of you are already aware of, but our minds are such that we forget things. At least I do. I, I forget lots of things. In verse 24 of Ezekiel 36, the Lord says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean. There's the water. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And every instance, who is doing the activity here? Who is doing the work? In every case, it is I will, I will, I will. Who is the antecedent of I? It is God himself. This is the work that God does. So it's not wise for us to turn this being born again into a do-it-yourself project and to call on people uh, to do it yourself. I mean, there's been books written that are basically amount to that. Here is a do-it-yourself project. Uh, uh, do it yourself. Uh, what are you going to do this weekend? Well, I'm going to put a deck on the house. What are you going? I'm, I'm going to be born again. Now, of course, that's an exaggeration, but that's missing this. Let's not forget that the metaphor that Jesus is using is birth. Now, who in this room decided to be born? I was born in, on July 3rd, 1967, right across the river. I had nothing to do with determining that time. And it's interesting that what the metaphor that Jesus is using is born. He's speaking to us in a way that we're in a way that we'll understand. And he says, unless a man is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. Now, what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is shattering him. Because his whole view, his whole approach to God is worthless and rubbish. You, Nicodemus, you've got a burden. You come to me tonight with a burden. And it's interesting. Jesus, in, in essence, says to him, you can't be saved unless God saves you. Now, why would Jesus say that to him? Because he's all on about externals. But where is the inward transformation? Where is the inward transformation? And Jesus is saying, listen, until you have that inward transformation, you can't enter, nor can you even see the kingdom of God. Now, a question. Should we use that in evangelism? Should we tell unbelievers that you can't be saved unless God saves you? I was listening to a, a sermon earlier this week, and uh, the sermon was on John 3. The pastor was going in a different direction than I am this morning, but he asked that question. Should we tell unbelievers that you must be born again? Should we tell unbelievers that unless God saves you, you can't be saved? He answered correctly. I think he answered correctly. He answered the same way I would answer. And I'm going to say, yes, Jesus is doing it. Who is Nicodemus? He's an unbeliever. He's a very religious unbeliever, but he's an unbeliever nevertheless. We can see that clearly from the text. We don't need to guess on that. He's an unbeliever at this point in time. And what is Jesus saying to this unbeliever? Unless God saves you, you're not going to be saved. Now, why would Jesus do that? And when would it be wise for us to follow? It'd be wise for us to follow when we're talking with somebody that's full of self-trust, self-righteousness, and self-complacency. Someone would think, whoa, that's a lot of folks, isn't it? Yep. It might even sound hauntingly familiar if we think about our own trek and our own pilgrimage. Self-trust. Self-trust. What's self-trust say? Self-trust says, I have it all figured out. I don't need your Jesus. I've got it figured out. I've got the discovery channel. 
right? Are we lacking any folks like that in our culture? Or even in our households or in our families? We got plenty of those guys, don't we? Maybe formerly we used to be one of those guys. Proverbs 14.12 and 16.25. It's interesting that both verses say the same thing. They say there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. The self-trusting one is what is the one that, that Bunyan in his Pilgrim's Progress called the worldly wise man. That don't sound too good, does it? You don't even really have to read much. You just see, well, here comes Mr. Worldly Wise Man. I got it all figured out. There's a way that seems right to a man, but it's the way of death. Self-righteous. Self-righteous says, oh, I'm not that bad. Let's take a look at John 3. Many of you are familiar with the passage, but let's take a look. John, or I'm sorry, Romans chapter 3, not John 3. You say we're already in John 3, Rick. We just read it. Romans 3, verse 10 and following. To the self-righteous. This is speaking of all human beings. Speaking of Jewish folks. Speaking of Gentile folks. There are no other folks other than Jewish folks and Gentile folks. That's all there is. And in verse 10, it says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat, look at verse 13. I don't think I developed this because we, we were in Psalm 5 a couple weeks ago on Wednesday night, and I, I don't think we had time to get into this, but notice it says their throat is an open grave. Have you ever thought about that metaphor? It's, 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 it's a nasty one. What does that mean? Their throat is an open grave. Well, imagine a, a tombstone or imagine a, a coffin being opened up. You know, it, um, some of you have seen that we... Tammy and I recently bought a couple old Jeeps, and one we've been working on, and I mean, it's needed, it's needed a lot of stuff. It's in great shape. Um, you know, it, one of the things that we haven't fixed yet is the air conditioning. I haven't even looked at the air conditioning yet. I don't know if it needs a motor or compressor or what it needs, but consequently, the air conditioning is the old-fashioned air conditioning where you wind the windows down. Do you remember those? Like if you want it to be super cool, like max cool is the window all the way down. You know, medium cools halfway up. And on these hot days, um, I don't know, two weeks ago, week and a half ago, when you went across Route 8, somewhere along Route 8, someone must have hit a deer, and the deer is down over the, must be down over the hillside. But out in that sun, you know where I'm going, don't you? And I've, as I've gone past there with the windows down, I'm like, wow. I mean, for the folks that are living in houses right nearby, whoa. That's the imagery here, everyone. In Romans 3, verse 13, their throat is an, is an, is an open grave. And it's, it's out of the throat that words come, and it's out of the heart that the words come, right? Reply Jesus' teaching to this. It's out of the heart that the mouth speaks. What is this saying about the fallen human heart? What is this saying? Well, go out on Route 8 with your windows down. That's what it's saying, you see. That's where we're at. That's our self-righteousness. And self-complacency says, I'm okay. I'm okay. Self-trust, I figured it out. Self-righteousness, I'm not that bad. Self-complacency, I'm okay. This paradigm has to be shattered or this person is never going to look to Jesus. And that's why I'm suggesting that, um, more than suggesting, I think our directive here is saying, listen, if you're going to get saved, God's going to have to save you. Now, what's that going to do to somebody who's trusting in themselves? What's it going to do to somebody who's trusting in their own righteousness or complacency? So, wait a second. You mean there's nothing I can do? Well, there is something you can do, and for that we'll have to continue. As uh, Jesus continues, back to John chapter 3, Jesus continues... Verse 6, he says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Jesus says, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. 
and bear witness. You might stop right there and say, wait a second. Notice what goes on right there. Notice what Jesus does in verse 11. He says, I say to you, we speak of what we know. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled over the we. Who is the we here? Who is Jesus referring to with the we? Now, some will say, well, that's easy. It's John the Baptist. Okay, John the Baptist. Others say, no, it's the prophets. Okay, they're both in the context, aren't they? John the Baptist is in the context. Prophets are in the context. Some say, well, it's an editorial we. Does anybody know what I mean by that? An editorial we. It's like when the editor in the magazine, uh, he begins to write an editorial where he speaks on behalf of his network, and he starts out with I, and then he begins to go we after that. That's an editorial we where he is speaking on behalf of the people in his group. Well, okay, an editorial we. What is this? I mean, another possible scenario is Jesus speaking of himself and the Father, and we could add that to, the, to that the Holy Spirit. Is the Father and the Holy Spirit in the context? Well, absolutely. John chapter 1 in the prologue, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. There's the Father. Of course, we have the Spirit, unless you're born of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. You see, we've got the Trinity already involved here. So could it be the Trinity? We'd have to say yes to that, wouldn't we? They're all on one page. But is that the end of it? I I don't think we need to actually make a choice here. I don't think we need to make a choice, whether it be John the Baptist or the apostle or the prophets or whether it be the Trinity. I think it's I think it's certainly the Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But also all of those whom the Holy Spirit has enlightened. Wherein John the Baptist is speaking the truth about Jesus. He would fall into the we. John knows a lot about Jesus. He says, he who comes after me is the one who ranked before me, doesn't he? What does he mean by that? He who comes after me is the one who ranked before me. In other words, he comes after me. I was born before he was, yet he was before me. What? I think John knows a lot here. I think he's part of the we, the prophets who were carried on by the Holy Spirit. Did they understand everything that they wrote? Uh, No. Sometimes I think they understood much more than we want to give them credit for. We could add them to it. I don't think we need to make a a choice on this one. I think we we could add them all in. Continuing in verse 11, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen. It's kind of interesting because one more thing about the we. You know, Nicodemus does come to to Jesus, and he says, we know. (laughs) We know that you are a teacher come from God because you you do these signs. No one can do these signs unless God was with him. So there's the we. I think it's kind of neat that Jesus answers with the we. Okay, you guys over there, well, us over here. You see, Nicodemus is not on the right side. He's not on the right side. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and bear witness to what we have seen, but you, notice it's, you, you might have a footnote there. In your English translations, you can't notice it. you is plural. I point that out because in our individualistic society, every time we see a you, we think of ourselves. We think of you singular, but this is actually plural. It'd be ye uh, in the King James. When I was studying Greek at, at uh, the seminary, we had to write yuns in there. Yuns meant it was you, plural. That's a story for another day, but it was really funny. It's a really funny story. You, if you didn't write yuns, you'd get it wrong if it was you, plural. It's you, plural. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. That would be Nicodemus and the group back in 23, 2, 23 and 24. You see, Every time you see belief in the Scriptures, it doesn't always mean saving faith. It doesn't always mean saving faith. Nicodemus is an unbeliever, and so are many of the folks back in chapter 2, verse 23 and 24. Because he doesn't receive our testimony. What does that mean? You don't receive our word. That's That's as simple as this. Let's not make that more complicated than it is. It's as simple as this. You know, we have received word that Hurricane Laura reached landfall in Louisiana. Okay, 
We all have, right? Everyone's heard that, right? Laura, a high Category 4 hurricane hit the coast of Louisiana a few days ago, right? We receive that word. We embrace it. Does anybody here doubt that that happened? Of course it happened. We receive it. Verse 12, Jesus says, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? I'll say, what's Jesus talking about there? He's talking about being born from above, being born of the Holy Spirit. Well, someone will say, wait a second, that's heavenly. It's heavenly being born again, isn't it? Yes, it's, it's heavenly, but it's heaven coming down on earth. Where does it take place? It takes place in this age here on earth. You see, after Jesus returns, there's not going to be any more being born again, is there? After the consummation of all things, will there be any more then? So Jesus is basically saying to Nicodemus, listen, I'm talking to you about the fundamentals, the basics. If you don't get the fundamentals and the basics, how are you going to get the heavenly things? How are you going to get, how are you going to get the things that are beyond that? And then in verse 13, if, you know, if, you, if you're like me, you've maybe found yourself confused by verse 13. Verse 13. I mean, over the years, I can remember early on being very confused by verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who is from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, doesn't it kind of sound like Jesus ascended into heaven and then from there descended back down? Has anyone ever got that from this verse? Maybe I'm the only one. Uh, but I can remember thinking, what's this a scratch in my head? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. So did Jesus ascend to heaven and then descend from heaven to earth? Is that what he's talking about? And the answer is no. Here it's, help, it's helpful to have a couple different translations. King James translation. It reads something like this. I haven't, don't have it memorized, but it goes... There's one word that's important. No one has ascended into heaven, but... You see, the except could be translated but as well. But he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And the King James goes on to say, who is in heaven. Some of you will have a footnote. and will say some manuscripts add who is in heaven. The translators of the King James add that. So there, the verse would be, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended... He who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, what's being said there? Jesus is basically saying to Nicodemus this. Nicodemus, if you want to learn about heavenly things, then you need to talk to somebody who's occupied heaven. You know, if you want to learn about Europe, I mean, a good way to do it is to be friends with someone who grew up and was raised in Europe. You know, I, I learned a lot, um, I wouldn't say a lot about the UK, because I've had several friends who were born and raised in the UK. One of my friends was Mark Dunn, who pastored First EP right across the river. We were good friends, prayer buddies. You know, he was my only buddy that called my wife by my brother's name. He'd say, Rick, how's Tommy? How's Tommy doing? Once in a while, I'd tease him. I'd say, my brother's doing fine. Thank you. He'd be so confused. And I said, and Tammy's doing well, too. The culture is really different over there. If you want to learn, I mean, if you can't go there, become friends with someone who was born and raised there. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, he's saying, listen, you want to learn about heaven, then you need to talk about, you need to, you need, you need to learn from someone who's occupied heaven. And until now, you've never met such a one, but right now you're face to face with one. Jesus has descended from heaven. And he goes on in verse 14, and this is the focus this morning. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What's that all about? What's Jesus saying there? Well, some of you are familiar with the story. I mean, keep your place in John. It won't take us too long to develop it. If you go to Numbers 21, Numbers 21, Numbers Genesis, Exodus, keep on turning right, past Leviticus, go to Numbers. Numbers 21, while you're finding the place, the, the, uh, the context is the wilderness wanderings. Numbers, 
gives us some many details about that 40-year period, if you will. And actually, in the immediate context, context, Israel has been delivered from some Canaanites. And in Numbers 21, verse 4, from Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea. Israel is marching. And they're going around the land of Edom because the Edomites will not allow them to go through their territory. And the people became impatient on the way. Verse 5, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. This is just a convicting verse. I mean, when we grumble and complain, we're not doing a small thing, by the way. Um, We're not doing a small thing. And notice they call this worthless food. What are they referring to? They're referring to the manna that God is providing them from heaven. Then the Lord, verse 6, sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned. We've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he'll take away these snakes. So Moses prayed for the people. Verse 8, And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at it, look at the bronze serpent, and live. So if someone was bitten by a poisonous snake and they had this poison running through their veins, they looked to the bronze serpent and they were healed. Now, um, some important things about this we need to understand, and I think all of us understand, is the people are not saved by a piece of bronze. It's a no-brainer. Um, they're, they're saved by God's grace as they follow His directive by faith, right? They're saved by God's grace as they follow His directive by faith. God is supplying the instrument of salvation in this context. And here's what we call, and it's the second time in John's Gospel that we've arrived at what we call the type and antitype. First time was the temple, right? Second time is this serpent, just as Jesus is saying back to John chapter 3, what is Jesus saying to Nicodemus in verse 14? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up as well. So just as the bronze serpent was lifted up publicly, and people looked at the bronze serpent, okay, so is Jesus to be lifted up. And we might say, now, I think probably most of us know this, but we might say, now, what exactly does it mean to be lifted up? Now, if you've read through John's Gospel at least once, you might say, scratch your head. Well, I remember seeing Jesus talk about something about that. And yes, if you look at John 12, John 12 is an important, this is an important passage to me because this is one of the primary verses that is at the center of my personal philosophy of ministry. John chapter 12, verse 32, where Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And there you see this idea of being lifted up again. And the Bible is its best interpreter. Because verse 33 interprets it for us. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So it's not conjecture on any part. Jesus is talking about the cross. And Jesus is saying that when he is lifted up on the cross, he will draw all men to himself. And that's, you know, when I was, I think nearly, and I think almost one of the last assignments that I was given to do when I was in seminary was write a philosophy of ministry paper. And um, I can tell you that my philosophy of ministry has not changed since then. My philosophy of ministry is centered right around this particular verse. That when the Son of Man is lifted up, He will draw all men to Himself. Now what's the significance of that? Well, a lot of times when we look at the cross, we think of Jesus' humiliation. That's very true. That is not false. That is very true. He hung naked on a cross. 
being executed in the, in the cruelest manner known to man at that time that was regarded only for the vilest of criminals. But do you ever think of the cross as his exaltation? Because there is a, there is a sense of exaltation on the cross. And it is in this. God is never more magnetic to fallen creatures, to fallen men and women like ourselves, than when Jesus is hanging upon that cross. Because it encompasses it all. His crucifixion, his resurrection, his exaltation, if you will, his ascension, his coronation. What was written above him? Here's the king of the Jews. A king on a cross. How magnificent. How magnificent is that? How absolutely magnificent. Now, let me just give you three things real quickly. I'll run through them really quickly. Lifted up. Jesus lifted up. I think that's a good title for this morning's sermon. If anyone has any better titles, send me a text and say, I think I got a suggestion, but I'm going to use lifted up. Does that sound okay? Lift it up. Lift it up. Jesus, in the context of his suffering and exaltation, displays the heart of God, where he is magnetic. See, that's, that's, that's why I preach through the Bible verse by verse. And that's why we center on Jesus Christ and we center on him crucified. If you take a look at 1 Corinthians, and 1 Corinthians is just such a wonderful commentary on John 3. 1 Corinthians, just a couple minutes. Get us through this. 1 Corinthians 1. If you look at verse 23, in fact, verse 22 would be a better place to start. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. We were looking at that last week, right? So you can almost hear the conferences. You can hear all the buzz. Listen, I mean, we want to be contextual, so if we're going to reach Jews, we need to give signs. There's going to be a, a conference, you know, in this summer or next or fall, and then we're going to show you how to make signs. You can just imagine uh, people jumping on that. And the same thing with wisdom. But notice in verse 23, Paul says, but we preach what? Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. You know, it's interesting that Paul doesn't give people what they're asking for here. He gives people what they need. So much of church growth today is giving people what they're asking for. In fact, they go as far as the poll to see what what best bait they could put on their hook. You know, these bait and switch tactics. And that'll put it, that yeah, congregation that's raised on that's going to be in chapter 2, verse 23 and 24. That's where you're going to be. That's your foundation. There's so many ministries that are built on events. Event after event after event after event after event. And a ministry like that is going to be built on the foundation of events. And the congregation of those ministries are largely going to be in John chapter 2, verses 23, or 20, 23 and 24. The apostle Paul built on the foundation. He even goes on in his, in his letter to the Corinthians to talk about the foundation. He builds upon Christ, and namely him crucified. So we see that this is important for evangelism. That's probably the easiest thing for us to see. In evangelism, should we tell unbelievers that you, unless God saves you, you can't be saved. And the answer is yes, if they're full of self-righteousness, if they think they got it all figured out, and they're trusting in themselves, and they're happy with themselves, then yes, we ought to shatter that, just as Jesus shatters that in Nicodemus' life. But then what do we give them? We give them Christ crucified, right? We give them Christ crucified. Now, what's maybe not as clear to us is that this is also important in healing. Now, some of you are going to know this because some of you, a few years ago, when you first started coming here, you were coming to me and you had these problems and they were painful problems. And what did we do together? We shared the gospel. We took and applied the gospel to those problems. 
Do you remember those problems? What's wonderful is those problems, you know, those problems were back in the dust, weren't they? And enough time has gone by where those problems are, maybe even the dust is settled now. It's bringing healing. How does that go? We, we get that here in 1 Corinthians. If you look down to verse 30, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 1, 30, because of him, you're in Christ Jesus. What's Paul saying? <laughs> Same thing. If you're in Christ Jesus, it's because of him. Who? God. Unless God saves you, you're not going to get saved. It's because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. Wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is the skill to be able to navigate this pilgrimage in a way that's pleasing to God. It takes the information. It takes the understanding. It takes knowledge. And it's the skill to put all that together and walk in a way that's pleasing to God in this life, right? Many counseling problems resolve from what? Not walking in wisdom. What do we need to solve them? We need wisdom. Where do we get the wisdom? It begins at the cross. We could go down the line. Righteousness. Notice he says righteousness. Because of him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness. Righteousness is everything that we need to be able to stand in the presence of God. Listen, you're not going to get anywhere in addiction or many of these things until you understand that, that you can stand by virtue of your faith in Christ Jesus, that you can be washed and clean, and you can be holy in God's sight. You're not going to make a lot of progress in addiction until you understand that. So you see the implications of that for healing. Each one of these is a sermon for another day, but sanctification, there's another one. Righteousness and sanctification. What is sanctification? To be made holy. To be made holy. That's a great bomb, actually. B-A-L-M, not B-O-M-B. B-A-L-M. It's a great bomb for a hurting soul. Sanctification. You can be made holy. Because when we're broken, we do not feel holy. And redemption. What is redemption? Well, redemption is what it means to be saved. Redemption is salvation. Um, so here we see the importance of this in evangelism. We see the importance of this in healing. And one last thing, we see this in the importance of devotion, worship. How often do you think about the cross in terms of worship? I mean, let me give you a graphic linkage between the two. And it's, it's like, this is what you don't do. But it actually teaches us by teaching us what you don't do, to teach us what you should do. Does anybody know what happened to the bronze serpent that Moses made? Does anybody remember? Do you know the history? Take a look at 2 Kings 18. Go back to the history books. You go back past Psalms, go past, uh, past Job, past Chronicles. After 1 Chronicles, you get to 2 Kings. Go to 2 Kings 18. There, 2 Kings 18, we have Hezekiah becomes king. He's 25 years old. That's 2 Kings 18, verse 2. When he began to reign, he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David, his father, had done. Look at verse 4. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces what? The bronze serpent, why did he do that? Well, for until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. They were worshiping it. They were worshiping it. They are ascribing to that piece of bronze what God was doing in their hearts. That piece of bronze is a type. It points to Jesus. But you see, by, you can see how that could create devotion and how that could create, you know, this desire to want to worship you. You look up at it and you see it and you get healed. But see, when we run to the anti-type, when we run to the fulfillment of the type and we look up and we see Christ Jesus, we worship. That bronze... Snake did not confer the grace to heal the person. God did that as they followed his directions by faith. 
But Christ has life in himself. And he does confer that grace. And the only one that really worships him properly is the one who looks up to him and sees that I am not going to ever get saved unless you save me. I have no righteousness. I have no wisdom. I have no sanctification. I don't have no redemption. I don't have anything. The only thing I have is the filth that you have to take away. Well, a person who comes to Jesus like that can't help but worship, can he? I think it's a good place to stop. What do you think? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great book. When we're speaking of the entire Bible, we also speak of the Gospel of John. How wonderful it is to preach through these passages and to preach through your word and to see these wondrous things that you have done. Lord, we see that you're never more magnetic than when Jesus is lifted up upon the cross. Oh, Lord, we so thank you that as we look up to the cross, we see that he has truly taken our sins away, taken our filth and our stench away, that he has given to us a perfect righteousness, that we can have this holiness that we would otherwise never have. We so thank you that you have given to us such a great Savior. Oh, Father, lift him up in our hearts, we pray. And as we go forth from this place, may we... May we tell those who really need to hear, who really need to hear unless you save them, they will not get saved. And instruct them to look upon Jesus and to look upon him at the cross and how our self-righteousness, our self-trust, our self-complacency will be shattered just like old Nicodemus. Oh, Father, we thank you for this instruction. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.